Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your non-managers and individual contributors, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Teammate. In this 12-month program, we'll be taking your employees through topics that include communication, managing your boss, getting results without authority, customer service, problem solving, decision making, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and we'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar, graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. Well, if you're a regular listener to HR Oxygen, you'll know that from time to time, I will take a podcast episode I did a few years ago for what was our original podcast, the Boss Builder Podcast, take that and update it a little bit and bring it to each of you as an audience. And so we've done that with a few, but one that I've been kind of saving up, and I guess saving it for a time when I didn't have anything else that I could drop, but not because it's last resort, it's because it's a great episode, I decided to pull this one out. Joe Price is an attorney that I met several years ago doing some business in Charleston, West Virginia. Now, the thing that really inspired me about Joe is that he spoke at a conference. And whenever you have attorneys speaking at a conference, you know that's the perfect time to get caught up on all your emails there with your phone because they are so boring. But I think what really struck me was this was the first time I had an attorney give me information that actually really resonated with me. Part of it is because he referred to art, which you know is one of my passions in life, but more importantly, the ability to explain things. Now, we dropped that podcast episode because we wanted managers to understand the consequences and the things that they could do to prevent themselves having to go to court. Well, I want to have that message brought back out, but here's the difference. When, and I know this really sucks to hear this, but you know, when you as the HR professional give people advice at work, they always kind of look at it like, oh my God, can we trust them? And I know that's a sad reality. I totally understand it. And so here's the difference. Now, this is an outside person, an expert who can basically say the things that you've been saying all along and nobody wants to listen to. My hope is they might listen to Joe. He gives you clear examples, ways that you can keep yourself out of court, ways you can do that job more effectively. So if you're listening, you may learn some things. More importantly, I want you to have this as an additional resource, just in case they don't believe you say, hey, go ahead and listen to this podcast episode. I know that is one of the longest introductions on record, but I wanted to give you reasons to listen because you will thoroughly enjoy the interview I did with my friend Joe Price. So let's quit talking about him and it. Let's get on with the most important piece of business today. That is to make sure your seatbelt is buckled low and across your hips. That personal item is tucked under the seat in front of you. Time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. 
And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Joe Price, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mac. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Now, this is great. I heard you speak at a conference in Charleston and several months ago, and I must admit, when I saw that two of the speakers before me were lawyers, I decided I might just get comfortable and take a little nap. But your presentation was by far the best legal presentation I've ever heard. And I won't go through and, and tell everybody what it was, but basically I came away with it uh, from it knowing that if you are not careful, you are going to get in some serious trouble from a legal standpoint. And so I knew at that point I'd have to have you on the show. And so here we are today. Um, I've got a list of questions for you. And so I thought I'd just go ahead and dive right in. You know, of course, our audience is newly promoted supervisors, those who are in the role and struggling a little bit, or even those who are thinking about taking that role. I'm thinking our podcast today would be especially appropriate for someone who's kicking the tires on the job because we may well scare them away from it, which in some cases, that's a good thing. So, uh, so Joe, let me go ahead and start and ask you, what three things are most likely to cause labor and employment legal issues for businesses? Well, Mac, thank you very much for the kind words. Um, I think in, in my experience, there are really three areas uh, that, that tend to be the most problematic. The first uh, is what lawyers call adverse employment actions. Uh, and those include such things as terminations of employees. That's obviously the, the one that's most fraught with danger. Uh, but even reassignments, uh, promotions uh, to one degree or another, uh, and then uh, the most recent ones that we've seen sort of uh, on the horizon have been these cases in which employees assert that they have been retaliated against in some way as a result of some sort of a report to a government agency or even an internal complaint with regard to such things as violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, that, that type of thing. Um, the second area that recently has become uh, very problematic for reasons we'll talk about probably a little bit later on in this podcast is the area of performance evaluations. Those things have turned into a literal minefield uh, in the course of litigation. And employment lawyers now find uh, whether you're on either the employee's side or the business's side, uh, that these performance evaluations are, are really fertile ground uh, for the plaintiff's lawyer to develop evidence of some claim against the business and, in many cases, against the boss or the supervisor that took action against them. Uh, we always uh, see the employee uh, in those things as a negative in the sense that what we're doing with performance evaluations, at least the, the traditional type of evaluation, uh, is sort of pointing out the strengths of the employee, but then uh, we, we are always pointing toward things that either, quote, need improvement, close quote, uh, or, or are just plain negative. And these things are always perceived by the employee um, as, as negative rather than helpful. Uh, and, and psychologists have been telling us for quite a while 
uh, that all criticism is negative, whether we call it constructive or not. Uh, the other part of that that we see is that the, the performance evaluations, the traditional type at least, uh, don't really serve to address deficiencies uh, and promote uh, either innovation or, or development of managers. So it's that sort of legal minefield of the, the performance evaluation and documentation uh, that has really become even more problematic in the last few years. The third thing, particularly uh, in my geographic area here in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio, uh, is union activity uh, and the things that employees uh, can do that are protected under the National Labor Relations Act and other laws. Uh, and if we're not careful as managers and businesses, uh, we find ourselves embroiled in unfair labor practice proceedings with the National Labor Relations Board. Well, of those three main areas, why would you say those are the most common trouble points? Well, they, they all involve sort of a common thread. Uh, and that common fled thread uh, is that each of these things or the processes uh, that, that are around each of those things all involve some sort of direct conflict or confrontation uh, between employees and supervisors. Uh, so these things always become... Uh, a sort of a negative influence in the workplace and can become uh, literally, literally physically uh, uh, confrontational from time to time. Now, how does the boss's actions trigger litigation? So litigation, I guess, is the act of we're in it. We're going to end up in court, right? Yes, we are. Uh, and it's really... Uh, the boss's actions, really he or she is the point of the spear uh, in all of these things. Although the, the prevailing statutes uh, are laws that directly impact the operations of the business, the company, it's the individuals involved in that business, uh, those who are making the decisions and those who are announcing those decisions to the employees uh, who are the, the focal point uh, in a lot of cases of the legation. What, what begins to happen as you see these conflicts uh, continue to develop and expand uh, is that there's a lack of dialogue uh, between the boss or the manager uh, and the employees, and that begins to result in this us versus them environment. Uh, the performance evaluations that I mentioned a little earlier uh, we also know that those things and the process of the performance evaluations create significant stress uh, on the part of employees uh, to the point where some get physically sick uh, when they go through this traditional performance evaluation process. Uh, and that results in not only greater division between the manager and the employee, but a tremendous amount of dis distrust and eventually, uh, in a lot of cases, pushed back by the employee when they're criticized. Uh, we also then have um, a lot of activity right now uh, that surrounds these differences uh, that are sexual, that are generational, that are cultural, um, and that breeds a lot of activity in the area of sexual harassment. You know, the most recent 
uh, manifestation of that is the, the Me Too movement. Uh, and there are tremendous difficulties in the business environment uh, where you have men and women together. We have a number of uh, clients now who are, are refusing to permit uh, employees to travel with a single person. Uh, so if a boss is traveling with a female subordinate, uh, they're often required now to have a third person along so that there is almost a witness to what occurs. Uh, and we then have uh, the issue of what are now commonly called the millennials uh, and how we begin to relate to them because all of the studies are indicating that, that they need things much different than do the, the customary, uh, more mature employees. So the, the boss is really the point of the spear in all of these interactions. And just about anything that the boss can do or, or that he or she fails to do uh, can trigger uh, these adverse responses by employees and that in turn can trigger litigation. Well, right now, I'm sure you have everybody's attention. Uh, I would be terrified if I had to go to court. But aside from that threat, what other effects do those actions have in the work environment and even in operations? Well, the, I think really, when you look at the threat of litigation, that's a big one. But from an operational standpoint, the effect may be even more dramatic uh, because, as we all know, uh, those environments where there is a significant amount of conflict, uh, whether it be obvious conflict or sort of this underground conflict uh, in which employees don't cooperate and don't really buy into the manager's style or programs, uh, can actually have, I think, a greater uh, negative impact on a business than the litigation can. Well, let's say that we have a disgruntled employee. One of those things that you mentioned, those top three, affects somebody and they're unhappy. So what would a lawyer look for when they bring a lawsuit on for somebody who's in that case, that, that disgruntled employee? Well, this is uh, an ongoing process for lawyers. We love it. We, we get into the the theories legally, but what we then begin to do um, is to use every device that the law permits us to use uh, to determine what we think would be the best arguments in behalf of our client to the jury. And it really doesn't matter whether we're on the employee's side uh, or on the business's side, we look for the same things. It may be a mirror image of the same things, but we look for the same things. Uh, what, we, what we go through is a process, as you, I'm sure you're aware, there's a complaint that's filed with either a state or a federal court. And then there's this process called discovery. Uh, and what that means is uh, for 120 bucks or whatever it costs the employee to file a lawsuit, uh, they can file the proceeding and get it started. But then the lawyers begin to look at everything that they can get their hands on, which will assist them in presenting the evidence at trial. Uh, this discovery process involves everything from depositions of uh, various folks, certainly depositions of the operative managers and the employee, uh, but it also involves a, a 
look at virtually every record uh, that the business may have, which would indicate how this employee was treated versus other employees. Um, and it will, it will inevitably lead uh, to the lawyers looking at what are called comparables. Uh, that is, if you have employee A who was discharged uh, for whatever reason, the lawyers then begin to look not just at employee A, but at all of the other employees who have ever been discharged for some period of time, uh, trying to make comparisons. Uh, was this particular employee that was fired treated the same way that the other employees were? Were there differences? Uh, is there any evidence that there was gender base uh, in the discharge to fire a female? Um, it, it also then is a process by which the lawyers will look at such things as the performance evaluations uh, to see whether or not there were any real efforts made uh, to identify and address clear deficiencies that the employee showed during their employment. Uh, there will be, if there was a complaint made, for instance, by the employee who has now been discharged, what we will look at is anything that would indicate that there was or was not uh, an investigation made by the business uh, of that complaint to determine whether or not the complaint was valid uh, and whether or not any action was taken, particularly in cases of something like sexual harassment. Um, if a female employee complains, did we do an adequate investigation? What did we find? Uh, and what did we do about it if we determined that, in fact, there was cause to believe that the, the harassment had occurred? So we look at all of those things as lawyers. Um, we also look at the question of whether or not, even more broadly than just the individual employee who has been discharged, whether or not employees in protected categories, and by that I mean if the discharged employee, for instance, was a female or a minority, how have females and minorities generally uh, been treated within that business, and how have females and minorities generally been treated by the individual boss or supervisor uh, who made the decision or participated in the decision to terminate the employee. Uh, and then finally, uh, what we are looking at pretty intensely uh, is whether or not the, the termination, if it's a termination, uh, or a failure to promote, uh, or any adverse employment action was the result of some sort of a retaliatory motive. And by that I mean, let's assume that we have uh, an employee who uh, four days before they were terminated, had gone to their boss and said, you know, I think we may not be in compliance with the Fair Labor Standards Act, or went to their boss as a female employee and said, I'm being sexually harassed. You know, the termination of that employee four days later runs up a tremendous red flag for lawyers, uh, because just that short period of time between the complaint and the termination uh, clearly indicates that there may have been some sort of a retaliatory motive here. Uh, so we then look at this long list of things that can result in retaliation. 
You know, I think one of the questions I get most frequently is, well, I thought there was such a thing as at-will employment. Well, there is, uh, and my state, my home state here of West Virginia is one which recognizes uh, the doctrine of at-will employment. But the last time I counted, there were at least 22 exceptions to that in West Virginia. So it's a series of, of analysis by the lawyers of everything they can lay their hands on that will allow them to make an argument to a jury uh, that their client uh, is telling the truth, whereas the other side is not. And now let's take a break for a quick word from our sponsor. What do you do when you have an employee who is highly skilled and highly motivated, but is still not successful? Some of these symptoms might be a person who's abrasive to others. Maybe they're not able to effectively communicate to others. Sometimes they say inappropriate things in meetings or in a one-on-one session. You observe them being culturally insensitive or highly opinionated. Or maybe they just have a few rough edges that need to be removed in order to be successful. In these cases, training is not your best option. At Boss Builders, we recommend coaching. Our strategic partner, Wisdom Tree Coaching, provides one-on-one or group coaching to resolve focus factor problems. The ICF certified coaches at Wisdom Tree Coaching use behavioral assessments and 360 surveys to define the root issue of the problem and then co-create solutions with the client. Wisdom Tree Coaching also facilitates a popular practical course entitled Coaching as a Discipline for Managers. Your managers will get helpful and useful skills to provide a coaching approach with their direct reports to mitigate and eliminate focus issues. Remember, training fixes skill problems. The best way to fix a behavior problem is through coaching. Contact the professionals at Wisdom Tree Coaching at 304-549-4630 or you can find them online at wisdomtreecoaching.com. And now back to the show. Well, how long typically does it take to gather all that information? That's one of the biggest problems the business will face. It depends, Mac, almost entirely on the jurisdiction um, in which you you are litigating the case. Uh, In West Virginia, it depends on the county, and it does in Tennessee, and it probably does in Ohio and other states. But at minimum, uh, the process of gathering all of that information is going to take at least six months. Uh, We have one case pending right now in which we happen to be representing an individual employee. Um, That case has been pending now for five years. (laughs) That's what what our client says. Wow. So you... I imagine so. Well, all right. So you have, let's say you've spent six months, you've gathered all of the evidence now. Um, How do you build a case? Do you have a methodology that you use? In most cases, you do. You start out with a theory, uh, but then you develop all of this information. You begin to put all of that together. And as you then get to the point where you're going to be trying this case to a jury, What you do as a lawyer is put together the facts in a way that you hope will impress the jury that your client uh, is is has done the right thing if it's a business or is the boss, Uh, and if you're representing the employee, uh, you're going to convince the jury that the boss and the business uh, really did the wrong thing for the wrong reason, uh, and your client should prevail. 
Um, I often tell the story, and, and I know you've heard this one, but I had a, a great aunt uh, who lived for many, many years in Pennsylvania and is uh, on the internet. You can look her up, and her name is Elizabeth Price. And as kids, uh, we used to love to go to visit our great aunt Elizabeth's house because she had this uh, beautiful old home on a canal, and the back of the house was a great big sunroom with lots of windows and tremendous light. And she had a uh, actually a mechanical bird in a cage, and we used to love to wind that bird up and listen to the bird sing. And then on very special days, uh, we would get to watch her paint a little bit. Um, and what we would see her do is go over to the canvas and take her brushes and her palette, and she'd mix the colors together. And she'd walk over and she'd put a little dot of paint on that canvas. And we'd stand there and watch her, and she'd put another little dot of paint on the canvas. And, you know, within 15 or 20 minutes, she'd have probably 100 dots of paint on that canvas. And what you would then see if you stepped back a few feet was a flower. Uh, she was an impressionist uh, in Pennsylvania. Lawyers do the same thing, uh, but what we work with uh, is the minds of the jurors. Uh, and what we do is we take uh, little snippets of testimony from depositions, uh, particular questions that we want to ask the witnesses on the stand, uh, documents that we have gained in the course of this discovery process, and we to try to weave all of that together so that we create in the mind of each of the jurors a picture of what happened, uh, if, if we're the plaintiff's lawyer, a picture of what happened to that discharge employee and why the boss in the business uh, should be found to have somehow damaged her. If we represent the business, we're trying to paint that same impression uh, of why the business did exactly the right thing in this particular case. Uh, and so as we build that case for the jury, that's what we're looking for, is where do we find each of those little snippets, and how do we then put those together into a painting that the juror will see and believe us? That's a powerful analogy. When I saw your talk, you had the visual, and that actually, that was one of the most significant things I think I've ever heard. I'd never really seen it from that perspective. So with that said, how does the boss defend against having to put themselves through this? Are performance evaluations a good firewall against a lawsuit? You know, 10 years ago, I would have said, yes, uh, I've changed my opinion on that over the years. I think at this point, uh, they probably create more problems uh, than they solve. Uh, it used to be uh, that the performance evaluations were done uh, in a way which everyone thought promoted consistency. And that's what we were looking for, because when the lawyers came in, the lawyers would be looking for anything that was inconsistent. So what we as businesses did was to develop these formal performance evaluation programs um, in which we used a series of forms which were designed to ensure consistency so that the lawyers couldn't look at all of that and find these little snippets uh, 
of inconsistency that they would be presenting to the jury. But what we have found is that those formal performance evaluations uh, are such that they really drive inconsistency more than they do consistency. And that happens because supervisors are inconsistent. Uh, the entire process is driven by the forms, uh, which means that the bosses and the supervisors feel compelled to follow exactly what's on the form. In a number of the situations, you can read the forms in ways that are terribly ambiguous. And in one section of the form, the supervisor may rate a person in one way. And, you know, two sections later, there seems to be something which is extremely similar. And yet the rating given by the supervisor is entirely different because the supervisor perceives that portion of the form differently than they did the first portion of the form. You then run into the problem of having different supervisors. So if you have performance evaluations going back 10 years, supervisor A was perhaps a, quote, easy grader, uh, and the performance evaluations that supervisor prepared uh, were, you know, reasonably good to very good for the employee. A new supervisor comes in and two years before the termination of this employee uh, finds that the employee is deficient and that raises the question, why? All of a sudden we have a good employee who seemingly has been rated very poorly. Yeah. Juries look at that with some degree of skepticism. So we have all of these different things that that go together now, and we have found that the, the greatest wealth of information, if we are representing a discharged employee, that is helpful to us comes from those performance evaluations. And yet the supervisors and the businesses are convinced as they produce those things that what they're doing is protecting themselves. Uh, I think in this day and age, uh, we're looking at a situation where the performance, the traditional performance evaluations uh, are probably something which need to be significantly changed in order to protect the business. No, it seems a, it's a little scary because those we've always been taught are, you know, that's your documentation. And when that is something that's called into question, uh, that seems like it's a lot to worry about. So with that said, um, doesn't business now, I mean, the way things are, wouldn't that just require a lawyer to run the business so we don't get sued? I always tell uh, any of the clients that we have that come in that, that are businesses uh, with which we consult, never let your lawyer run your business. Uh, it is the, the business folks the bosses, uh, the entrepreneurs who need to be making the decisions as to what's right for that business from a business perspective. What the lawyer can do and should do is to be able to sit down with the entrepreneur, uh, sit down with the boss and say, here are the things that we see that present risk to your business. Having identified those risks, we can then go through the process of assessing how big each of those risks may be 
developing programs or plans that would minimize those risks and then allowing the business to go ahead and choose what it prefers to do once it understands where those risks lie and what those risks are. Okay. Well, getting back to the boss who's just sat through and listened to, you know, 25 minutes of all of these things to look out for, if you could give him just one piece of advice, Joe, to avoid a lawsuit, what would that piece of advice be? The one piece of advice, Mac, would be that they listen. Uh, and that may sound a little strange coming from a lawyer, uh, but I'll tell you another story. Uh, before I went to law school, I was in a uh, sales and marketing position. Uh, and it was an industrial sales and marketing position. And before they would put us out in the field, uh, they had us take uh, a training course which had been developed by one of the large business machine manufacturers and sellers. And it was a three-day course, uh, a lot of role-playing, but the first entire day uh, was devoted to a program called Effective Listening. And what I learned from that was the most important information that you gain is when you listen to what someone else is saying. And for a new boss, if you listen carefully to what your employees are telling you, you get a wealth of information about things that concern them, uh, about how they view your communication style, what their communication style is, uh, you get information if there is, for instance, any sort of union organizational activity. You will definitely hear about that if you listen to what folks in your workplace are saying. So I think from a perspective of both the business and, and a lawyer, uh, if you listen to what's going on around you and really have open communication and dialogue, uh, with both your subordinates uh, and your superiors, that really is the key to avoiding a lot of the problems uh, that lawyers will eventually have to deal with. So, Joe, thank you for uh, all the great information you shared. I'm pretty sure my audience now has more questions and maybe more things to worry about. What is the best way for my audience to reach you? Uh, the best way, Mac, is my email, which is J, as in Joseph, M as in Moore, P as in Price, at Ramlaw, R-A-M-L-A-W dot com. Great. Well, Joe, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. And, uh, you know, we are grateful for all of the great perspectives and information that you shared with us. Mac, it's always a pleasure. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy making them. I've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years, and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm Credit webinar that we present as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs. More information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, you may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.